I'm amazed how many people own stocks. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Podcast. My name's Paul, and each episode, me and the lads get together to talk about the stocks, stock market news, and finance in general. Quick disclaimer, you shouldn't consider anything in this podcast as personal financial advice. If you need such advice, go to a financial advisor. And please remember, when investing in any form, your capital is at risk. So sit back, relax, and let the lads fill you in with all the stock market news of the week. The sucker's going up. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Show. I'm here with Steve D. I'm Steve W. And we're here to talk about all the stuff that's been happening this week. Sam Bankman-Fried has now been arrested. Elon Musk has been selling another tranche of Tesla shares. Uh, and Paul Briscoe is at home, I think, but somewhere other than here. So, Steve, how's your week been? Uh, my week has been, it's been okay, really. So, um, up until today, I was doing pretty well in the market, just a few percent here and there, had a couple of up days, a couple of down days, but today I've had a bit of a battering. Both portfolios are down currently as I look at them. It's Thursday night as we're recording, uh, 4.28% and 4.27%, which kind of smell a little rat on that. It kind of sort of insinuates that this is a really broad market sell off that, you know, a profit, a pie full of profitable companies most of which are currently paying a dividend and a pie full of companies that might never ever make a dollar in their <laughs> dollar of profit ever are down the exact same amount. Kind of makes me smell a, a little rap. But outside the market, Steve, it's been, uh, it's, it's quite common in sales for anybody who doesn't work in it to go around delivering bottles to places. And that's what I've been having to do. It's how I make it sound like it's a real chore, but it is a, a chance to go out and meet your customers and say hello and, you know, put, put near, uh, faces to names and things like that but uh, it does mean that unfortunately i've been driving an electric tesla uh, around very very cold parts of uh, lincoln and i tell you what they're lying about that 320 mile range for starters it won't even charge <laughs> that far it charges to 288 miles and you're lucky if you get 200 uh, i went i only went into lincoln it's about 40 miles away i had to pop back up through Scunthorpe, which is about another 30 miles away. I think the round trip, I probably did 200, uh, 180 miles, and I rolled into my garage with 20 left. Uh, and at two points, the um, windscreen wipers froze. So, yeah, Elon, you're done. <laughs> Elon's not interested in Tesla anymore. He's now a Twitter enthusiast. Um, but is that because you just absolutely rag it around the streets of Lincoln then? You just can't rag anything in the snow, like, as you will know. Uh, there's just there's no ragging, uh, <laughs> especially when you're sort of like looking at your mileage and thinking like it's going down two for every one you're doing. You think I'm going to be in serious trouble because the road from Lincolnshire back to Hull is not laden with chargers <laughs> or cities <laughs> or anything you could stop and uh, and do it. Like if it stops, you just you're going to have to just abandon the car and walk back home. What do you do? Take it to the nearest Greg's and try and plug it in? I'd probably just ring me mum. Come and pick me up, mum. <laughs> <laughs> last few shopping days here before Christmas. Uh, I say last few, it's the 15th, but with various strikes on various things, time for buying presents is running out, and that is getting close to flustering me at the moment. Not because I have massive amounts of unbought Christmas presents, but because my wife's birthday is on the 26th, so I'm always on the oh. hook for kind of double presents around this time of year, which takes quite a bit of thinking, and if I were more organised, I would spend the year writing things down that she says she wants the trouble is, 
And she wants things during the year, she just tends to buy them, uh, which means that they're not really still things she wants by Christmas. They're now things that she's got. Which uh, So that kind of means that I've got to try and think of an awful lot of stuff. And this year, with um, having the baby as well, we've decided he's going to do token presents for both of us, which means I've got to think of another two. Uh, they don't have to be big things, but I do have to try and work out what he might reasonably give his mum so I, any ideas down below as to what i should give my wife for christmas that can be wrapped and put under a tree um that would be very greatly appreciated so that's what's on my mind um portfolio wise i'm doing not amazingly well things have mostly gone backwards wish i had more money to invest around this time of year mm. not seeing any particular santa rally but i always think that with these kind of things those are hopeful ways of investing rather than thoughtful mm. ways of investing but we're not far from a prediction show for next year so i'm not too far off thinking about that kind of thing myself yeah um expect some truly awful predictions and and looking back at the truly awful predictions that we made last year yeah I, i've looked back at my can you remember any of yours steve you don't have to say what they were by the way but can you remember what you predicted um well yes not now i can't but the thought four times I've thought about over the year, I've, I have gone and looked at them and gone, oh yeah, <laughs> they were the ones I made. Um, mm. Yeah, I, I think um, just as a quick spoiler alert, I don't think I got anywhere near any of them, but um, <laughs> we shall see. That's good. I also don't think I've got anywhere near any of them. I think there might be one of mine where I'm going to maybe try and give myself half a point. Uh, for it there's two of them that are absolutely definitely and uncontroversially wrong so at the start of the year i made the mistake of giving quite specific predictions because i had no room for um i guess what i would call vague and unprovable things where you sort of make a noise about something that is roughly going to happen and then claim that you're right pretty much whatever happens afterwards so i thought none of that i'm going to make specific testable predictions and they've mostly been provable to be wrong but we'll see about that in probably next week's episode or the one after i guess Let's start with some macroeconomic news then, very much the theme of 2022. We've had some inflation data and some interest rate decisions from both the UK and the US this week. So the general overview goes a bit like this. Inflation in the UK came in at 10.7%, which is actually down from the 11.1% in November. The US was at 7.1%, which is down from 77 Interest rates, UK that was announced today is up to 3.5%, up from 3%, US up to 4.5% from 4%. Steve, we've been talking about this all year pretty much, so why would we stop now? Any thoughts on any of these? No, not a great deal, really. It was like the uh, the West kept secret in interest rate rises ever. I mean, the inflation news was uh, genuinely positive news. I thought they both came in uh, under expectations, uh, marginally under expectations. That shows that, you know, the trend is at least heading in the right direction. Um uh, the hikes were what we expected as well. We expected that they would go from 0.75 to 0.5. Uh, I think for some reason the market was hoping that this would then lead Jerome Powell to come out and say, all fixed, uh, don't worry about it, this is the last 0.5 and then we're going to go to like no hikes or 0.25 hikes and, and he didn't. He sort of came out and committed to the earlier statements which were generally about he would sooner over tighten than under tighten and he seems like hell-bent on forcing this like uh, this this high high air unemployment and um uh, well what looks like heading to a sort of recessionary economy uh on, on to the us which it, you know it, it could end up being the great reset if they over tighten too much and 
they could have a lot of people out of work and they could have, um, you know, very high interest rates, lots of things becoming unaffordable, debt becoming unaffordable, which is a, a massive problem in the US anyway. Um, but then you look at the sales as well and you've seen that retail sales are still very strong at the moment, but they're noticing that there's a quite a large amount of it going on to not credit cards because you have to presume they're full. They're now going on to buy now, pay later. So a lot of people are still trying to have this big Christmas in America and they're doing it on, uh, well, they were doing it on debt. They usually do it on debt, but now they're doing it on, you know, scary debt. So um, this could be, you know, this could be bad. I, I don't know. It, it sounds bad, um, but the trend at least for inflation uh the, the, you know when inflation comes down to two or three or whatever jerome powell wants to set the new tag as I, I do sense that we might be told that so long as inflation is steady they're happy with that they they might be steady at three steady at three and a half steady at four they might they might adjust the target to to that number because two is an uh, an arbitrary number there's never really been a reason why we have to i think um i was listening to demodoran the other day who said like it doesn't really matter what inflation is because the world will react to whatever that number is it has to be steady we can't have two six twelve twenty two six it has to be one of those you know if it's eight or if it's six or if it's four it has to be that fairly consistently and, and the world will you know will will adapt um so interesting to see where we actually head i, I don't know how this ends uh really but it, it is nice to see that inflation number coming down even if uh in the uk specifically uh food prices are still really really soaring yep you picked up right there right on the end of the thing that was catching my attention it was the uk inflation number and that was inflation particularly coming off in things like eating out so i guess the kind of more discretionary spending stuff food prices are still very high i think they're still moving their way up actually for what mm. it's worth compared to last year i have this idea in my head that inflation is going to start lapping tough comps at some point in much the same way as we think about sales growth kind of lapping tough comps for certain companies coming out of covid and so on i, I think something similar is going to be true about inflation for what it's worth back to predictions again i thought that was going to happen this year and i've been completely wrong about that but the uk inflation did start coming down and i wonder whether that's just the start of turning the corner i'm not going to get particularly carried away with that or very excited about it with inflation at 10.7 percent that's a long long way from two it's a long long way from i think any number that could be safely considered kind of home hmm. we've been talking on the show for some time about how generally speaking inflation in this kind of situation doesn't come under control until the interest rate crosses the inflation number Hmm. And at the moment, you can now see them just starting to work towards each other in the case of the US. So interest rates are up to three and a half percent. Inflation is down to 10.7 percent. I mean, last month it was 11.1. So that was still going up and working its way away from the interest rate number. You can just see that gap starting to close a little bit. It feels to me like the US are an awful long way ahead of us, though, here. They're only a point, a percent, sorry, higher in interest rates. But the gap between sort of 7.1 and 4 is, okay, there's a 3% spread there. In the UK, it's still close to an 8% spread or nearly an 8% spread. That feels to me like the US are, well, maybe they're going to hit kind of recession first. But it looks like that's going to be a kind of thing that we see that leading the way. And the UK are following slightly more slowly. 1% is a lot, though, isn't it, still mm. as well? And I mean, I know US generally have, I, I seem to remember they generally have higher interest rates than us uh, 
I think their lowest they went down to was a quarter of a percent, wasn't it, during COVID, if I, if mm-hmm. I remember correctly, whereas we went straight down to, to zero. 0.1, and, uh, I think, yeah. Yeah, and Euro, the Eurozone just, just gave money away. Um, but uh, 1% is a lot in terms of in terms of the 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 debt profile of the of the the two countries so um and for especially in terms of hikes for britain that was that's two quarters or two quarters away of hikes essentially isn't it so um but one of the positives that did come out of it steve we got an email today uh from uh chase bank mm. they had seen the 0.5 hike and rather than waiting months and months and months which they did last time and it got to the point where i moved my emergency fund out and three hours later they said we're raising the rates higher than where you've moved it they've actually jumped the jumped ahead this time and they're raising their standard savings account to 2.7 percent so obviously chase for those who don't know is a jp morgan bank it, it, it's won one of our bank awards i think when we did those <laughs> probably a, yeah. a lot there was a lot of categories so a lot of things won things um but yeah we we really liked it i think you beat tested it steve if i remember correctly and 2.7 is a very attractive rate for savings what do you think yeah, you're right. I did. I did a user testing thing, which turned out to be the JP Morgan Chase app. And I said some things about it, which they completely ignored uh, for what it's worth in their testing. Presumably no one else thought they were issues, but it wasn't to do with functionality particularly. I was slightly put off by the idea of what appeared to be a Monzo pot like thing involving setting up new accounts all the time mm. because going through my head was why do i need a new account here this all feels very wells fargo to me yeah. but uh they ignored that and justifiably so i mean they are an award-winning bank why would they need to listen to the people who well distribute the awards in fairness but they won anyway rising interest rates have got me kind of worried a little bit i take your point actually that the gap between three and a half percent to four and a half percent is a lot all right it's a sort of another 30 percent of the three and a half percent thing is kind of the way to think about it i guess rather than thinking of it as just the one percent here the gap between those two is think of one as a proportion of the other one it's kind of getting me worried a bit for 2023 from an investing perspective i guess maybe worried maybe interested i suppose a little bit of a spoiler alert for the prediction here but it does make me think recession is very much kind of on the horizon and this sort of brings out your thought that there's a big difference between where we started and where we've ended up we've gone from point one in this country to point three uh, point five, and i think that's going to be a really really big headwind for growth and going to bring on a recession and i think it basically has to because i was just sort of thinking my way through some basic stuff here and thinking look companies grow by making investments they invest in either new outlets if they're a shop or new products or whatever they're investing in but that costs money so it's only worth them doing it if they're going to get a return on the money they have to send out. So imagine you're a shop like Costco or whatever, and you reckon you can add another $2 million over 30 years by opening a new outlet. Probably more than that if you're a Costco, but take $2 million for the moment. And to do that, you have to borrow a million today. And with interest rates at 0.1 of a percent where they were at the start of the year, the cost of that is $1.015 million. It's nearly nothing, more or less. So your $2 million return over 30 years looks pretty good. With interest rates at 4.5%, which is where they are in the US, that's going to cost you 1.8 million, that 2 million return. Is that worth it? Probably not, realistically. It's just going to be the case that that store doesn't get opened. And that's going to be the case, I think, as things uh, interest rates go up, debt becomes more expensive, cash becomes more valuable, that people are going to have to think, look, is this opportunity really worth it versus hanging on to my cash here? And it will make it the case that some of these things, increasingly, it just becomes no when debt cost nearly nothing and cash was basically worthless, sure, send it out on any old thing. 
grow in as many ways as you possibly can, as long as they'll generate at least some money for you. Nowadays, it feels like the move this year has made it quite a stark difference to stuff. Things have to be much, much, much better investments to be to justify getting bought these days. Yeah, this is the thing as well, isn't it? I think I always see recessions as an opportunity for the government to to provide actual proper stimulus in areas where you know where they can get a decent return from it. Getting people who have now been kicked, you know, have lost jobs into into jobs into infrastructure jobs or creating infrastructure. This is the time to really build things to sort of like try and help the economy uh, out a little bit. So one of the reasons, um, one of the things I have seen is that they're, they're basically trying to lessen the the um, the CET1 liquidity ratios uh, for insurers, and they're hoping that that will mean that the insurers will have a little bit of extra money in their float, that they will then be able to maybe fund some private investments here and there and, uh, and you know, uh, not have to hold as much money back in case of, in case of any kind of shock, mm. uh, I don't think that's going to happen because I think the the insurers are just going to look at the Bank of England base rate and say, "Well, I can get three percent of my money if I just stash it with you." Well, I don't really see the need to take any risks on any kind of private infrastructure bill, and that's that's not our forte. Uh, I just think that's just going to end up with the insurers, which is a good thing if you are the British insurer. And I think it's just going to end up with these guys making a little bit more money off the government um, here. So I am uh, not convinced by that. Um, I guess the other thing we should mention, Steve, because I forgot to mention it back when we were talking about Chase, is that the actual premium bond uh, rate has, in, has improved as well. So that's gone from what I believe was 22 to 3%. And they have... Uh, they have um, basically three times some of the bigger prizes. So if you get, uh, so I think it's 25K, 50K, and 100K off the top of my head, the odds mm -hmm. on winning that prize now are trebled. So that brings the overall rate to about 3%. So uh, that was interesting enough for me. I shuffled half of my emergency fund into premium bonds. Um, so I'm quite interested. So I've got half of it in uh, the Santander 2.72% bond account, and I've got, half of it in premium bonds so uh if i'm not here next week i've won a million well done i was gonna say do you have anything in premium bonds i sold all mine at roughly the start of the year and bunged it all into realty income which i'm actually reasonably pleased about it's going quite mm. well i've managed to kind of grow that a little bit that by the way is one of my few stocks that's up today uh, any idea why no idea I, me either, I haven't looked, but I know it was the day that the dividend got paid today for people who actually get the dividend on the day that it's paid. So I wonder whether there was a big old auto-invest on that that's helping uh, create some buying volume. Hmm, makes sense. I guess that is kind of what you do with the realty income dividend, isn't it? Basically, yes, as far as I can tell. I mean, you need to think it's kind of trading at a really, really strange valuation to not be worth doing that. Yes, they also hiked the dividend last night, I believe. I think they hiked it by about not, was it 0.2 or 0.02? I seem to remember it being a very small hike, but they do pay monthly, I guess. It was a very small hike. They uh, tend to hike quarterly. They pay monthly. Those hikes hmm. are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. I was looking at the stock earlier today and having seen the rate it's been growing its dividend at. This is a really good example, by the way, of a company that's going to get negatively affected by rising interest rates. I still think it's worth buying at these levels, but it's 
the case with them is they have to try and basically work out a kind of spread between acquiring new things and the rate they'll have to pay on the debt for that because they'll do it by issuing bonds in most cases versus the rate they're going to get coming back in the other way and it's basically a spread business it's i'm going to take on debt at five percent and i'm going to get a six percent return by these things coming out so i make one percent more or less that's pretty much the shape of their most recent thing actually when they had a bond issuance it's going out at five it's getting sent on stuff that will bring in revenue at six or return, sorry, at six. That, of course, depends on them actually getting that return and their tenants not going bust. They tend to be pretty good at that. For what it's worth, their occupancy numbers tend to be very, very high and they tend to have very, very good rent collection stats with one notable exception recently. But, Steve? Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, uh, their the, um, the record is very, very good, even through COVID. <laughs> you would say that they still perform better than probably the vast majority of REITs in, in that kind of space. And then they've span out their um, their office arm or some of their office arm, um, which uh, lowered the risk of, uh, well, the risk of the reason I sold it is that I just thought that I didn't think we would return to work as, as fast as we had. I thought there'd be a lot more work from home. Um, which I did see an interesting stat on. The link, uh, CEO of LinkedIn tweeted out, I think it was that 14% of all jobs now that get posted on LinkedIn have remote work uh, listed in the thing. And they receive, those 14% receive 50% of all applications. So there's obviously a, still a massive desire for people to to mm. uh, to remote work. And, and that was my fear, but I think we've been dragged back to the office. I think it didn't scream in and this will be a forgotten uh, sort of small period of our lives. But that was my big worry with realty income that I saw this trend that they were at the forefront of and they smartly span out, you know, the part of their business that was the big worry. Yeah, they, I think I was looking at them over the last 10 years, they've managed about a 13% annual return, which you would take mm. from pretty much anything in terms of a combination of if you reinvested the dividends you'd received and the share price movements and so on and so forth. I don't think that's going to continue for what it's worth. I'm not expecting a 13% return going forward from Realty at all, partly because they're a much, much bigger company now than they were before. Their revenues are a lot higher. It's going to be hard to just add incremental rent at that kind of level increasing interest rates i think will make growth harder i still think it's a very good option here for what it's worth i tend to be um of a view that kind of slow and steady and gradual gradual outperformance will get us uh to somewhere decent in the kind of buffett style but back to chase for the moment they're housing my um emergency fund i got that email saying that they were raising their interest rates so i guess hiking their dividend about 45 minutes after you told me on discord i think it's um it's a good move from them i think to get ahead of everybody but the problem is now is it's game on isn't it i think uh, mm. we'll have to see what what um other people come up with it's always when this first one sort of like you know the, the first one shows the cards there's always a, a lot of other people in the back going ha 2.72 <laughs> <laughs> i think chase have done fairly well actually i was pleased that they finally got there with their mm. most recent one i like you had got my money out and i got it into marcus actually was where i'd lined up for my mm. emergency fund house and it stayed there for probably a few hours until it came back again into chase because chase decided okay fine 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 we're gonna we're gonna push the thing up as well so looking well, forward I to some more interest coming in yeah. I had a tandem account so um, oh. from previously. I think they bought Bank of Ireland off the top of my head, and I think I got sort of grandfathered over there. I took one look at the app and I realised it was like 
people trying to build a fintech but on old technology and hated it and then like closed it but i actually i'm sure i closed my account and i it took away all the notifications but they still sent me a message through that saying that they'd raise their interest rate to i think it was 2.05 at the time which was obviously high so i was like got my account back open got like the money transferred over and then literally i think i remember like logging in the discord and you see that that bank accounts and savings section flash up clicked on it and i was like oh god's sake <laughs> moved it all back and closed the tandem account back down again and you know we'll have to wait and see uh see how they react to this yeah so it's always nice to be I think it's nice when interest rates rise in this kind of way. Being able to run around and find somewhere that you think is actively better to try and put your emergency fund savings and so on. I know they're not the way we try and make money or anything like that, but it's always nicer to be getting a couple of percent on it rather than point a couple of percent. Yeah, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? Can you remember the t- like the times when you were saying, like, looking around for 0.25 or 0.5 mm. and, and you just thought... Really, there was no point. I think for a period of time, I I was that sort of like couldn't be asked with it. I didn't even put it in anywhere that was getting interest. I just shoved it in a pot on Monza. But now it's nice to just have somewhere that you can put it in. Just, you know, you might only get like five or ten quid a month out of it or whatever, but it is nice to get something. Yeah, I agree. Speaking of things that have basically gone to nothing, uh, though, we, last July, I think, set up some stock samplers. It was David Gardner from Motley Fool's very last one ever before he retired off of stock picking for them. Still does some interviews and so on, but nowadays leaves the general running of the business to some of the uh, lieutenants from before. But he had a final five stock picks for three years as of, I think, last July. So we're now approaching the halfway point, very roughly, in our stuff steve and i picked five of our own as well we had i think one rule which was that we had to have at least one uk stock each uh, oh no they had to be five different ones obviously hmm. um steve how's all that going it's been a pretty miserable year for stocks and we haven't talked about it very much especially the ones that we picked so how are things looking there well we're all down uh, hmm. if that's uh if that's any news to you I, not. I would suggest it's probably not uh but we are both beating um David Gardner, you're beating him by a fair old margin, and uh, I'm beating him by the virtue of being less down uh, mm-hmm. than than he is, so I'm going to take that as a win. But I think anybody who bought this last stock sample, and maybe if it was their first introduction to David, uh, would be uh, quite thankful that he's, he's retiring, because uh, he is currently down 49.6% on his five stocks. So just to remind you what was in that sample. I thought it was going to be worse based on the two that I can remember. (laughs) Well, he's green on one of them. So, uh, which kind of shows you. I haven't, is it Axon that he's green on? It is Axon. Yes. So his five were Peloton, Trade Desk, Axon Enterprises, Unity Software, and Zillow. Uh, so Peloton uh, has taken £2, because that's all we put into each of these. I'm not going to lie to you. We didn't put mega bucks in it. But he's managed to turn £2 into 21p. Uh, trade desk... <laughs> <laughs> trade, it's about trade, 90% then, right? Yeah, 89.5. Yeah, so... Uh, trade desk has taken £2 into £1.39. Uh, that's down 30.5%. Axon has taken £2 into £2.18, so up 9%. Unity has taken £2 into 61p, 
down 69.5%. And Zillow has turned £2 into 65p. So that is down 67.5%. Um, this, we did say, I think, Steve, we're going to let it run for three years because he's mm-hmm. going to let it run for three years. So there's still yep. plenty of time left in this sampler. Um, but if you were comparing it to the S&P, which is what it usually compares all of these things to, it's, uh, it's going to be a big loser. Any thoughts? Yeah, my takeaways on the Gardner sampler are twofold. Uh, one is that, and I know this is always easy to be wise after the event, and maybe we're always kind of slightly influenced by stock price movements and we sort of let the market tell us what to do a little bit rather than keeping our own thoughts here. But when I look at those and the returns on them, and they're nearly all kind of down, but the one that's up as well, they are pretty much in rank order of the order that I'd like to add them to my own portfolio uh, in. So I would most like Axon. Um, mm-hmm. I would least like Peloton. Above Peloton, probably Zillow. Uh, and those other two kind of in either order, but I probably prefer the trade desk to Unity. So I'm a little yeah, bit kind of a little bit more indifferent towards that middle bit. But I sort of think that makes sense to me. And I, I'm trying not to just be led by the thought of, well, clearly this is a good stock because it's done well for the last uh, 18 months or so. And my thought, though, is that that's, that's pretty much what I would have expected in terms of rank order, not necessarily in terms mm. of them all going down. And I think Axon deserves probably a little bit of credit, really, because it's been it's been a winner in a period of time when that sort of stock, that trades on that sort of multiple, has been crushed so uh fair play to axon for continuing to continuing to produce results for him i mean peloton zillow and unity have all been very very bad performers and trade desk has kind of just been caught in a macro withdrawal from the advertising market which is obviously going to going to affect trade desk but uh, i'll move on to uh, the second position uh, which is is myself um my stocks or my five are down <laughs> 38.3%. Uh, just to remind you of the five, uh, well, I'll go through them one by one like I did before. So I've managed to turn with Alphabet £2 into £1.65. That's 17.5% down. Um, £2 into £1.64 on Sartorius. That's 18% down. Uh, £2 into £1.50 on Autodesk. That's 25% down. Uh, £2 into 81p on Tremor International, that's 59.5% down. And surprisingly, in last place, the value stock that I put in there was Scott's Miracle Grow, and that's £2 into 57p, that's actually down 71.5%. Uh, I thought, out of all of them, Scott's was the one that was least likely to do anything, uh, and it's, it's, it's done the most least worst, the worst, whatever the saying is. Mm. It's done shit. <laughs> it's, it's underperformed your underperformers in general. So Google has been your best of them, basically, then. Yeah, Google and Sartorius are a penny away from each yeah. other in terms Sorry, of it. So, yeah. They're basically adjacent. Scott's Miracle Grow is the one that I always remember that you have, but always forget to pay any attention to what it's doing. It's. Hmm. I agree with you. It's the one that I thought... You have a bunch of other sort of similar-ish stuff going on there, and I thought, look, if markets go down... That one might just do enough to keep you in the in the hunt here and do kind of well, but it's actually leading the charge downwards for you. There was a time a few months ago, and this does go to show you this stuff can all turn around very, very quickly, where I thought Scott's Miracle Grow was up uh, for you at one point, and it was pretty much the only thing that was. As mm. this was around the days when people were starting to get a bit wise to Peloton and so on on the on the Gardner portfolio. But um, any ideas what's happened there? 
Uh, I was just trying to have a quick look now while we're on the phone. It looks like they've just had really rapidly declining sales, and in the last two quarters, they've uh, changed from uh, from decent net income to uh, losing money. So, in fact, there's been quite a rapid decline in their sales. Look at them now, year-on-year changes down about 33%. So, uh, this this company has has collapsed. Apparently, it's still paying a 5.37% dividend, which worries me quite a bit, really, because there's... Uh, with what? There's there's no cash flow to be paying <laughs> dividends. So, uh, apparently, it was founded in 1868. I totally missed that. Were we doing fertilizer in 1868? We weren't doing anything else, were we? That, that was tech back then. Yeah, true. <laughs> okay, yeah. how am I doing, Steve? So, uh, you, Steve, are winning quite comfortably. Um, you have turned the £10 original investment into £9.51. Uh, which is, uh, you know, you've got your little funky bit where um, Black one of Steve's for the win. yeah, one of Steve's companies was kind of bought and and oh, uh, yeah. span off a little sort of arm of it, so it kind of throws the, num- the numbers out a little bit. Um, but overall, uh, the Aspen technology is flat essentially uh, from my maths. So mm-hmm. you're essentially two pound into two pound there at the moment. Um, your other stocks though, Alibaba, you have turned oh, two pound into 86p. That's down 57%. You have Renishaw, uh, which has hmm. changed two pound into one pound 46, down 26.63%. You have Roblox, which has managed to change two pound into 70p. Uh, that's down 65%. But your winner, and the one that is making you far and above uh, uh, above me and David Gardner, is your PG&E has changed £2 into £3.61. Unbelievably up 80.5% on a stock that I bet you didn't expect would move that much. I'm not sure what I expected from that, to be honest with you. Here was the story around PG&E. They'd basically been going through something approaching bankruptcy proceedings, and they were roughly getting ready to exit those. So they were in a lot of trouble back when we started this sampler as a result of causing a bunch of fairly horrific forest fires over in California Mm. that had resulted in several deaths. Uh, And I'm not saying that lightly by any means. Uh, They were justifiably on the hook for quite a lot in the way of uh, Widows and Orphans Fund, basically. And one thing the market doesn't like is uncertainty. It doesn't like people losing money and causing deaths either. But what it really doesn't like in this context is uncertainty as to how all that's going to kind of play out. You've seen it a little bit recently with Glaxo shares while they were dealing with a legal case around cancer causing things. But that's kind of all finished and is working its way through. And they, I think, have a roughly agreed nine and a half percent maybe with California return on equity and one feature of having a lot to do with kind of starting forest fires is they need to invest quite a lot and they're going to get a good return on that so I knew when I was buying that I was buying it around the bankruptcy time it's a utilities stock it wasn't likely to completely go out of business was I expecting it to go up 80-something percent? Absolutely not. Uh, if we'd had a big bull market, I was thinking it was the one that might have cost me, uh, to be honest with you, because I thought it might well just chug along a little bit and maybe move 10. It's done a lot better than I thought it was going to as people try and seek out any kind of growth across this sort of market. Apart from that, I think my general takeaway from two of mine is that I didn't ought to... It's okay for a bit of fun on a stock sampler with a couple of quid, right? But in general, buying stuff that you don't understand very well or know about very well 
is a bad idea. So the two that stand out here are Renishaw and Roblox, where my investing theses were very, very thin in these both of these, I don't know them that well. Renishaw, I know to be a kind of manufacturer from the FTSE 250. Cathy Wood had it in her 3D printing ETF at one point. I had to come up with the UK stock. That was the best I could think of at the time. Didn't really want it very much, uh, but it's proved to be a pretty poor. I always forget I have Alibaba. Um, I'm surprised that's not down by more. I think I might have just caught this on a lucky sort of update when you were updating this. Yeah, it's had a big uptick. There's quite a lot of the Chinese stocks have had a sort of a recent uptick. Um, but that pie we were looking at earlier, Steve, um, with, uh, mm. it was very interestingly spread out. Um, Alibaba has made a pretty um, a pretty decent comeback, really, is, is how I would uh, explain it. I, I mean, we're not talking about it heading back to the sort of, I think it was $400 at one point, wasn't it, off the top of my head, or at least in the sort of late 300s. But... Well, when I sold it the first time, and I have owned it since then and sold it since then, uh, I sold it at 273, and the last time I looked at it, it was about 80 or so. Yeah, I think it's back nearer $100 at the moment as well, so that mm-hmm. is perhaps... Uh, but but you even still, uh, even if you caught us on those down days, uh, you would still be uh, outperforming us. In terms of my portfolio, I've got a couple of advertisers in there. I've got... Um, yeah. From, uh, International, uh, which is an Israeli company that trades on the London AIM, uh, handles the scatter market for uh, TV advertising. Uh, scatter market is dead at the moment. Um, there's not that secondary budget that Steve and I spoke about a number of times uh, in advertising. That secondary budget has dried up to almost nothing. Um, Alphabet will be a net benefit of advertising primary budget, but will not benefit from scatter budget. Uh, so they're also um, getting hit. And then I've got um, Sartorius, which uh, was an expensive stock, is just reverting back to uh, a, a less high PE. I guess it's trading to a more realistic valuation. Um, Do you think there's a sort of line that we could use to try and work out where it might go next? They don't have European stocks, so I <laughs> Do don't know. They not know. have the line. Um, I have to plot or- it myself based on their PE and stuff. Yeah, Autodesk uh, is just slowing a little bit, I guess. They've given some pretty weak guidance, but up until that point, we held up quite well. Uh, and then, obviously, we've, we've talked at length about Scott's Miracle Grow. That's just that's just not that's just not doing the business. No, uh, Roblox. In my case, you called that a fad at the time, I think, and it's it's certainly the case that the momentum hasn't come through in the way that uh, people with more money in it than either of us might have hoped for from a kind of metaverse perspective still with roblox if that price i mean i know we're talking about stock that's already down a lot but if that stock got another sort of 30 percent off it 35 percent off it i'd be quite interested in that around the sort of 10 to 12 sort mm-hmm. of billion kind of mark i think there's still a lot of legs in that um i my niece both my nieces play it to, to absolute death they've got all their friends on it as well it's kind of like become the stepping ground from minecraft which is what they originally started playing mm-hmm. they now all play roblox and it's quite a social thing they all go on and play together and build things and even go to concerts and night stores and things like that in roblox so it's all kind of strange i think they're gonna, they could they could end up with a better metaverse than zuck which would be like the ultimate irony if you've you know if you've seen how much money he's poured into it they are the only metaverse thing i've heard of that's not called meta platforms i think mm. But uh, I only thought of this and I thought of the things today because I was in WH Smith looking for Christmas presents and cards and so on. And I 
saw like Roblox gift vouchers and thought to myself, oh yeah, that's still a thing. I remember that. And then thought, hang on, I, I own that in my sampler thing. We should check how that's going. I imagine quite badly. And I'm sort of pretty much correct. It's down about two thirds or so from where it was when we, when I decided it was worth having in my stuff. Maybe we'll do this again sometime in a year and a half when we kind of run out of them. Include Paul in that game. That'll be fun. Hmm. Uh, but anyway, so it's time for a new kind of segment that I've thought of, at least for the time being. Steve and Paul and I like reading investing articles with catchy clickable titles like, I'm buying this FTSE 100 stock to invest like Warren Buffett. Uh, and I thought it might be fun to take some of these brilliant headlines and see whether we can write them differently using our own ideas. Uh, so let's see how we get on. To kick us off, I thought we might try this one. One stock to double down on in December. So I'll go first. When I think about this headline and spoiler, I actually wrote this article, so it's, it is one of mine this time. Uh, I think I'm looking for a stock that's been falling this year, but where the underlying investment thesis is still intact. And I think the business is in good shape. And I think it's decent value because of its lower price tag. So I did write this over at full.co.uk, but my pick for this was Amazon. Uh, Amazon down 48% at the time I wrote this this year has a PE around 88 that's mostly because its earnings have been crushed by things that are not cash costs. So they had a $7.6 billion in total over a number of quarters. This was right down in their Rivian investment from before. That went not very well. Uh, and I've been hearing good investors, people who I genuinely respect their kind of input on stuff, saying, well, look, Amazon's expensive at a PE of 88 or something like that. And when I start hearing that kind of thing, I start to think to myself, people are just writing this off a little bit too quickly uh, in this situation because it is indeed around a PE of 88. And it's absolutely true that Alphabet has a PE of around, I think, 19 last time I looked. And 19 is a much smaller number than 88. Uh, and they're both very good companies, both very big, both very strong. But that makes me think that people are just looking the wrong way on Amazon a little bit at the moment. So net sales were up this year. Online sales were up 7%. Subscription sales up 9%. Advertising sales up 25%. Amazon Web Services revenue, that real engine that we looked for, was up 27% to around 20 billion or so. Inflation has been showing up there as it's been showing up everywhere else. So operating earnings, so discount stuff like write downs for the moment were lower. But that's kind of what I expect. Amazon, I think, has a bunch of assets here that are really quite valuable in some ways. They have a very good line into people's houses. They are increasingly becoming the shop that you go to for uh, anything that you're going to buy online, Christmas shopping, Black Friday, or whatever. And they also have a kind of business model that I really like. I quite like businesses where they don't have to rely on battling it out with pricing uh, in order to make money. So Amazon, of course, has Prime, which is a subscription service, which means they have revenue coming through the door regardless of what they actually do or don't sell. And that's pretty high margin revenue on the whole because a Prime subscription doesn't really have much of a kind of cost to Amazon. They have various other costs, but we can come back to those in a bit. And that means that they, of course, can compete on price a bit more aggressively than somewhere that doesn't have this kind of thing. They also have AWS bringing in revenue fairly, obviously, uh, and doing so in quite a heavy way. That means they can always charge less than someone who doesn't have these kind of things. If you're a shop and you're trying to compete with Amazon and all you do is sell things, then, well, look, your only income is going to be the margin you get from between the cost that you bought the thing at and what it costs you to get it in the shop and the cost, the price that you sell it at. 
Amazon doesn't really care about that. It's a bit Costco-y, uh, in my view, from what I can see of it. So Costco charges a membership fee and then basically just drives down all the margins to approximately zero. And then why would anyone shop anywhere else rather than Costco? It's that much cheaper for them. Amazon, I think, has something similar going on here. You charge a Prime subscription, you get AWS revenue coming through the door, drive down all the prices, and more people uh, shop there. Therefore, they buy your kind of Prime subscription, and the whole process kind of rinses and repeats. Cash flows don't look like they're there very much, but I think that's the thing that's going to happen and going to come eventually with this one. So I think Amazon down 40-something percent at the time that I wrote it is my stock that I have a big investment in and would double down on in well december or probably 2023 as well steve you own this as well yeah and i've been buying a lot of it this year um Mm -hmm. i bought it um around the hundred dollar mark again and again and again and i'm just looking now it's it's finished the day 88 45 as well which is like hurry up payday um i would would really like some more so i think people are just totally well i've long thought people have and we've long demonstrated that we think people are looking at the wrong numbers on amazon anybody who looks at the pe number and just automatically dismisses it is just completely missing the business at a whole if amazon retail can churn out two and a half to three percent net profit margin aws continues to come along delivering high margin uh the market put the amazon marketing um comes along and delivers decent margin then any other thing that amazon adds to the business be this you know zooks or uh, the aspects of alexa that they're working on or their other bets like the pharmacy uh robo taxes anything else that they bring along to do that will be excellent things for amazon but even if they don't deliver any of those things you're going to get high margin aws high margin marketing they're going to sort out this logistics um and and deliver a three percent margin on the shop that's going to be a lot of money that's going to be a lot of cash on that on that bottom line um the fact of the matter is and it's a real bit of pill to swallow with amazon is that they don't care about making net income they really do not care um so if you're looking at net income uh which obviously would generate your p ratio and saying that's too expensive you're just not looking hard enough um at the moment, I'm looking, they're a £900 billion company. Now, I would pay that for AWS alone, never mind all of the other things that you're getting on the side of it, um, which are growing at rapid paces. It doesn't even matter if the retail arm doesn't grow very much anymore. If it grows at 1%, 2 or 3% every year, that doesn't matter because AWS is getting to such a scale where that has pushed the needle for Amazon now, and the marketing will come along, and that will also push the needle for Amazon. Um, so I was watching a couple of interviews with uh, Andy Jassy, and the, he was handpicked for the CEO of Jeff Bezos. Uh, Jeff Bezos says, said to Andy Jassy, if you won't take the job, I won't stop working at Amazon. I won't retire. I won't go to chairman because Andy Jassy's got the same long-term focus that Bezos had. He's not somebody who was going to come and go, right, I have to change everything because we have to make profit right now. That was like anybody who says that Bezos is looking at this share price and going, right, I'm going to, I'm going to Bob Iger him. You know what I mean? I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to get into it with Bob Iger. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's, he's not going to do that because he knows that everything that Andy Jassy is doing is exactly what he would have done, which is continue to double down on the bits that, you know, the new arms of Amazon that will continue to make this company bigger and bigger and bigger. Amazon's biggest problem is regulation, uh, nothing else. Yep. Uh, they also have an advertising business, which is kind of coming in nicely at the moment as a little add-on. Amazon's an interesting company, and here's a, a kind of intangible feature that I quite find, I want to say like about it, I think respect about it more than anything. A lot of people hate them. 
a lot of people really don't like Amazon uh, for good reasons and bad reasons, and we can get into whether which ones are which out of these. But some people just don't like the fact that Jeff Bezos is really, really, really rich, uh, like insanely rich, almost absurdly rich, and some people think immorally rich. Um, and there's also a kind of issue around the fact that this has basically been built on the labour of deunionized workers. Um, no two ways about that. Uh, but despite that, and despite their very strong outrage at Jeff Bezos and Amazon, a lot of people who think that do shop there because they have the best delivery, the best fulfilment, the best range of stuff, and probably the best prices of anything as well. And unless you really want to spend time hunting around for something, which a lot of people don't, people really don't like it, but they do shop there. It's not even like, hardly anything now is even Amazon curated. Almost everything is third party sellers going on and, mm. and listing a product and selling it. So you've essentially got a shop where third party sellers come on, list a product for you, do all the writing, take all of the all of the photos and then spend money market, uh, marketing it to people and getting it to the top of, of, of the search rankings and, and we come along and buy it and for a fee, Amazon will also deliver it. So Amazon, like, is so low touch on these products. It's, it's crazy that the margins aren't better and you would think when they do finally, you know, turn the screw on, on, on the retail arm. I bet you that it could make more of a profit than Costco because they're not looking to... I mean, the the, the reason you buy things from Amazon isn't always on price. I, I, I disagree with that. It's the fact that it turns up on your door the next day. And in some yeah. parts of the UK and the US, it turns up the same day. Um, and, and that's just incredible. I mean, back when I was, you know, a young lad and, uh, and Amazon was first, on the scene and it took three to five days to come if you were looking to buy i don't know say for instance a playstation game there was a real option of just going to asda and getting it rather than getting it from amazon but now when you're telling me it's going to be here the you know the very next day or sometimes later on in the day i'm not going to asda <laughs> <laughs> yep so the, the kind of message i guess for me for december is long amazon short asda if you can find out who owns asda is walmart asda uh, not anymore. They sold it to I think a they private, haven't. They? A yeah. private sure. Okay, so sure, as there, if you can get hold of something that represents their share price. But perhaps unsurprising that I've looked at a kind of big tech thing then, given that the year we've had, it's not been a good year for the fangs particularly. Steve, where have you gone for a stock to double down on in December? I've gone for big tech also, but it's like it's quite reduced in size, uh, just as much as Amazon uh, <laughs> over over the year. And it's kind of um, it's kind of. Well, we was going to do it last week, but we ran out of time. Mm. Um, but uh, interestingly, um, it's down about 9% today. And it's down today because uh, Laura Martin of Needham, she's quite bearish on Netflix. I've seen quite a few of her uh, posts on it. Um, she decided to post a note that's saying, Netflix is giving money back to advertisers because it can't find, it can't deliver the adverts to people, which seems strange when... Uh, the advertising business has only really been live for six weeks. Mm, and, I was going to uh, say it launched in November, right? Yeah. So, and if you can't uh, if you can't deliver adverts to people, then you just run the campaigns a little bit longer. So that seems really, really bad. So I thought, just out of pure interest and not devilment, I would just have a look at Laura Martin's tip ranks. Um, <laughs> so she uh, is uh, tip, so tip ranks. Just for anybody who doesn't know, if you see an analyst and you think that's a very stinky review, I don't really like that. You can search for them on tip ranks, and it tells you really how um 
how well they're doing. So, um, and it basically takes all of their, um, if they're upgrading prices or downgrading prices or telling you to hold or whatever, and it tells you how they've done since they started making these recommendations. Uh, Laura Martin, I said, was a 0.2 out of 5 rated analyst. Uh, actually, Casper corrected me. She's actually 0.16. They're rounding it up. They're rounding it up from like, the lowest possible denominator as well. She's a 0.16 out of 5 uh, rated. Uh, she covers... 56 stocks and has a 36% success rate. So that is, you know, throwing darts at a dartboard. Only 36% of them actually hit the board. Um, interestingly, Steve, I just had a quick look down here. And I think the worst one of her ratings is she has a $180 price target on Peloton, um, which is a 1,470% upside. So if you don't mind, I'm going to have a go at analyzing Netflix again myself sure thank you for answering the question though of who's still buying peloton for us hmm. normally the answer to this kind of thing is pension funds or something but it's because we're asking who's buying bonds when the yields are at one percent and inflation's at five or something like that you might be wondering who's still buying peloton stock well presumably the analyst with a 180 dollar price target on it yeah well i mean maybe bill ackman who knows he, mm. he sold netflix pretty quickly maybe he thought oh well this peloton's got a big <laughs> a big upgrade maybe i'll go there Sorry, can you tell um, us about Netflix? Right, I'll, I'll start really quickly with just a little bit about what Netflix actually is. I, I think this is, is almost pointless, but it, it, it's worth just covering the very basics. Um, so uh, Netflix is a, a flat fee, somewhat flat fee, I guess we should say there, because they keep raising the price. Uh, but it's a monthly subscription entertainment company which opens up a large variety of entertainment content to the user. So this will be things like documentaries, TV series, movies, and more recently things like um, games. About 65% of uh, this is original content, and the other 35% is bought in. It's wholly web and app delivered. Instant access, fully bingeable, nothing gets held back. No time-gated content releases. And this has led to them having industry-leading low churn rates. Uh, and that's the rate in which people leave a platform. It's about three times less than their competitors. That is interesting to me. I knew all those things about it, but they sort of don't really fit together in my head in a certain way. I sort of think bingeable content leads to less churn is sort of surprising for me. I would have thought kind of having people hanging on waiting for the next episode was a sort of more more natural way to go. If it were me, I think I'd watch the whole thing and find there was nothing to watch and probably leave. Any ideas on why those go together? Well, the reason why I think that happens is because there is really... A lot of people have more than sort of 45 minutes to watch a TV show on a night. A lot of people can fit in two, three, or four of them. So if somebody is going to release, you know, one show a month, um, uh, one yeah, one show a week, sorry, for for a month, you might as well wait a couple of months, uh, then sign up to the... Uh, Sign up to the program and you know watch them all in all in one go and, and save yourself a month's subscription, and that's a problem with uh, the content providers that don't have a lot of content. Netflix has a lot of content, and by the time you've finished you know one series, there's another series ready to go. They have a very good recommendation engine that knows what you've liked, especially if you feed it with the the updates. Um, it will start to um, recommend things um, you know that are, are, are of a similar th a similar ilk to what you've just watched. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, that makes sense, I guess. Yeah, sorry. Uh, carry on as you are. Okay. So um, the business operates in 190 countries, Steve. Do you want to name them? Yep. Um, <laughs> uh, England, the USA, 
Canada, India, Australia, New Zealand. How many is that? 175? Uh, France, Germany, Poland, uh, Russia, uh, maybe. Um, hang on. Probably I, not anymore. No, probably not anymore. Uh, Iceland, Greenland, uh, Norway, Denmark, Sweden, whichever country Paul's currently in, uh, whichever country Sam Bankman Fried is currently in. Uh, <laughs> is jail a country? <laughs> <laughs> you probably get it in jail, I reckon, but... <laughs> so, 190 countries. It actually produces content locally, so actually for that country, uh, in 40 of them as well. So it's probably a little bit bigger than you think. So it's going to end this year with about 230 million paid subscribers. About a third of those are in North America. We like that because uh, they're high ARPU, mm-hmm. um, average revenue per user. And this amounts to about $30 billion annually in revenue. So it's founder-led. We like founder-led companies generally. Its CEO, Reed Hastings, founded the company in 1997. Uh, back then, it was a DVD by mail company competing with Blockbuster. The irony of this being they have now made a TV series called Blockbuster, uh, which is really, really cold. Um, but yeah, they were competing with Blockbuster and Love Film, which was acquired and retired by Amazon, if you remember that. Uh, mm-hmm. In 2007, they switched from DVD by mail to streaming only. In 2010, they broadened horizons and entered markets outside of the US. In 2013, they began ho- uh, heavily focusing on homegrown content and IP rather than buying it in. And I, I suppose we can now add that in 2022, they've swapped from being a monthly subscription to being uh, or to having an ad-supported model, which creates a, a whole new marketplace and a whole new revenue stream for them. Yeah, this is an incredibly successful pivoting company, isn't it? I always, it kind of feels to me like a company that's just about reaching maturity. It's been in sort of growth mode for quite a long time. We've been looking at subscriber numbers and that kind of thing rather than cash flows, even though it's kind of been mature about sort of three times over. It's a kind of born again thing in the streaming market. Yeah, it is. And the market as a whole is is really, really vibrant as well. So um, in the last few months, the streaming market has finally overtaken broadcast television as the most watched medium in terms of in terms of watch hours. And this is still only in the mid-30s percent. So, I mean, potentially, this is we're still early in this transition to streaming. So um, this obviously has led to a large rise in the competition. And I think we can fairly say there's varying quality and varying approaches. Uh, there's been a bit of consolidation in the sector as companies have kind of doubled up to try and uh, help themselves be able to spend the amount of content that places like Netflix and, and you know, fair play to Disney Plus, uh, they're also offering. Um, Netflix is the only company that's spending close to $20 billion uh, and making a profit. Uh, in fact, I would say apart from Disney Plus, they're probably the only ones who could at the moment. Yeah, it's quite a kind of congested space, this, isn't it? It does look like a vibrant space, the streaming space. It does look quite busy uh, as well, and there's kind of a lot of players that want a piece of that action in in terms of sort of Comcast and um, HBOs and various other, other things. So does that mean this basically comes down to a race for who's got the deepest pockets to outlast everybody else? I mean, potentially, that is, uh, that is the problem here, but... Uh... Netflix will tell you that they're happy with what they're spending at the moment. So it looks like 17 billion is about the ceiling for now where they think, you know, people are going to struggle to spend this amount and buy the kind of shows that we're going to buy. Disney have got a lot of IP that they can develop. They don't buy in as much kind of content as, as what, um, as what Netflix are doing or they don't originate 
brand new IP in, in the sort of way that, that Netflix are. So, you know, Disney is a different beast spending that kind of money. But it'd be interesting to see, and I mean, there's been consolidation in the sector, so it'd be interesting to see, uh, you know, where this, w- what happens next here. Yeah, these are quite big numbers we're we're talking about here, spending sort of 17 billion, 20 billion on, on content. These are sort of big investments, I guess. I mean, how does that kind of translate into you know where's the return or how does the return kind of look in terms of revenue and so on yeah so i mean we're looking at 30 billion dollars in revenue that's about 12 dollars a user uh outside Mm -hmm. of the us you're looking uh um about half of what uh, north american arpa is so there's room to you know to frog boil there which is probably my new favorite uh saying so when netflix are confident that people in these countries will pay more um they will be able to squeeze a little bit more money out of people obviously ad support will come along and support that so in terms of like how it works out so content spends about 60 percent of revenue uh marketing sales cost is about six and a half percent of revenue uh they what they spend on their technology is about eight and a half percent of revenue and other costs make up about five percent of revenue so roughly speaking we're looking at an ebit margin of about 20 percent free cash flow ends up being about a billion uh, this year. Uh, the delta between the two is the Netflix has to pay up front for its content, so it constantly drags on free cash flow. Um, tech spend here is pretty low, though, uh, and, and this is because Netflix runs, builds uh, nearly all of its own software. Um, its two sort of key software components are something called Branch Manager and Open Connect. Uh, Open Connect is like a purpose-built content delivery network. So like a little bit like how Cloudflare sometimes uh, does content delivery. A little bit like Akamai, if you've ever come across mm. with Disney used to distribute the content. Oh, Fastly would be another one. Um, Open Connect essentially helps an ISP uh, localize networks, uh, Netflix's traffic through its own 17,000 server network. So this reduces lag and it increases the response time, which is why you find that the Netflix app is usually very, very good. You very rarely have any kind of any kind of failure on it because it's running on purpose-built software. Branch Manager, you've probably played with this, but I bet you probably didn't know you had. Uh, if you've watched the Black Mirror interactive episode, Bandersnatch, um, where the choices you made in the program actually affected the storyline so you basically it was like watching a film but you had to play with a remote at the time um this was all done through branch manager and uh, netflix has actually quite a few of these sort of like choose your own path style content and um and it runs all of this on its own um hand-built software so also in this con uh in in this cost is actually all the localization of content so netflix really does spend quite a lot on things like quality subtitling and dubbing and localizing for for a global audience um so just quickly speaking of uh content co-ceo ted surrenders believes that the content spend is about right he says so the question really now is like does netflix continue to drive its revenue by growing both its arpu and its membership whilst keeping a lid on content cost because if it, if it manages to do this the figures on the bottom line should should rapidly accelerate from here yeah, they will. It's reaching the point with where it gets what we call, what we call, because it is, uh, something called operating leverage then, right? So as your kind of revenue grows, your margin grows with it, which is something that often feels like something you want from a from a business. You want your growth to kind of, and you're especially in a kind of stock that's in growing mode and starting to convert over to cash here, you want it to be the case that the growth kind of is bigger the further down the kind of uh, income statement you go on these cases make it once and then kind of ship it out feels like a sort of uh, operating leverage model right it doesn't cost you anything more to add a new subscriber or not much more to add a new subscriber so you pay once to make the the show and so on and then send the thing out quite a bit that can be that can be a really powerful thing when the company's growing right 
One of the models to look at when you think about this in terms of, you know, people thinking that subscriber numbers is topped out is that Spotify is currently nearly double what uh, Netflix has. Um, so, I mean, they have an ad support tier, they have a free tier, so there's obviously going to be an element of people who were prepared to use that service. But if Netflix prices the ad supported tier correctly and people um, think it's a fair service, then there, there is a, a scope for that area to be to be quite broadly built out. The other thing I'm going to say is, and I'm going to put my neck on the line here, is that I think they actually have some pricing power. Um, and I was very wary of making the statement before seeing growth return on subscriber numbers, but I am a bit more confident now. I think the dip in subscriber numbers like we've seen at the beginning of the year was just growth pulled forward over the pandemic. And this is people having absolutely nothing else to do. And it led to outsized two-quarter churn, which I'm betting is just a one-off issue. So... Netflix are certainly indicating this is two. They're, they're projecting over four million ads uh, in the next quarter, so uh, it looks quite positive to me. Yeah, and I think that I think this is something that makes a difference for what it's worth between Netflix and Spotify. And I feel more positively about Netflix than I do about Spotify. I'm not sure Spotify pricing power. I'm not. I'm less convinced it's there. The stuff that you find on Spotify, and I get they are trying to find differentiated content with podcasts. Hi, anyone listening on Spotify, by the way. Uh, and so on but broadly speaking i think of spotify as a kind of music listening platform and music is in many many ways a commodity i'm looking for songs i'm looking for artists and i don't really care upon which platform i find them whether it's spotify or apple music or google music if there is such a thing i'm not sure that there is uh but i think amazon might have a music thing put this way i don't really care kind of where i get it from here because the product is basically undifferentiated spotify trying to correct that using podcasts but in the case of Netflix, they produce their own content. Therefore, they have a product that is different. You can think it's better, worse or otherwise, but there is at least a point of differentiation there, which makes them not a commodity in the way that Spotify is. So there is a good sense in which it makes um, a reasonable person might have multiple kind of TV subscriptions because they're not just watching the same thing on all of them, even though there'll be some overlap versus something like music, I think, where it's a different sort of proposition. Mm. You've got to remember Spotify are building out the proposition as well, so they're also doing audiobooks now at the moment as mm. well. So uh, they are trying to be everything ears, aren't they? So um, that will be that'll be particularly interesting. But the question that you had at the beginning is, well, is a stock to double down on, and this is why I think you should double down on them. So uh, Netflix are perennial sandbaggers. Um, so they always go a little bit under guidance where they're, they tell you this is what we see, this is what we're seeing, but really this is what we're seeing, but we're just, just softening it down a little bit so we can beat, <laughs> it quite, beat it quite comfortably. And I think this is one of the best content slates that I have seen for Netflix in a quarter, and the best content will drive more subscriptions. So just to quickly run down it. Uh, Wednesday has been released. Uh, it actually got a lukewarm critics reception, but the user score on IMDb was 8.5 out of 10, and Rotten Tomatoes give it a really, really high uh, score too. It's actually now on pace to be their second most watched TV show ever. In this period, they've released All Quiet on the Western Front, 1899, who made uh, the show Dark. This was a pretty critically acclaimed show. Uh, Troll. And they've recently got Glass Onion, which comes out, I believe, next week. Uh, they've stolen this from Lionsgate. And Lionsgate are so mad that they have lost this series that they're refusing to show the previous movie on their own streaming service. And they will not license it out to anybody. So 
Netflix actually gave uh, this um, Glass Onion a limited release in cinemas. So they released it in about a third of US cinemas for a week only. This actually generated $15 million in revenue over, uh, I, th- I think it was actually a five-day period. And uh, I watched an interview with uh, with Reed Hastings and uh, he let out a wry smile when he was informed that it could have made three times uh, that amount if he just let it run a few weeks more. This was purely for marketing purposes. Netflix know they've got a cracking film on the hand. It's by uh, Rian Johnson, who did uh, quite a lot of the recent Star Wars films. Uh, they they know they've got a cracking film on the hand. It's got Daniel Craig as the, as the lead actor in it as well. So they know this is going to be a hit over Christmas. Um, and it's got a decent bit of hype behind it now. And then lastly, I mean, let's not forget that there's the Harry and Meghan documentary, uh, which no matter whether you care about this or not, and I, and I would argue you shouldn't, um, it has attracted a lot of eyeballs. It's had over 80 million hours watched already just on the um, just on the first three uh, episodes that came out. I believe the others came out either last night or today, the rest of the series. So uh, it's Netflix's biggest documentary launch ever. And I think it's going to drive a lot of subscriptions. Mm, yep. You said whether you care about it or not. Uh, I don't. But I also think that people just like what they like in this context. And I don't think my preferences are any more or less worthy than anyone else's. Absolutely fine if people want to watch that kind of thing. Um, just a couple of quick things there then. So Wednesday, regarding uh, Wednesday's reviews on IMDb, uh, sounds like your friend Laura Martin dreams of an 8.5 out of 10 uh, rating of this in this kind of way. Um, more seriously, though, content, as, I, as far as I can see, is one, the most important thing, and two, the most impressive thing about Netflix. The titles it's managed to build out to differentiate itself, back to the point I was making before a little bit, uh, have been really, really impressive, right? There's some that can kind of run and run. It feels like sex ed- sex education always build out another series of that and just keep that running for however long as well as some that kind of can't it feels to me like queen's gambit is sort of uh, a one and done type of type of show but it's been really impressive seeing these kind of titles and seeing these kind of titles work as well as they have some obvious ones and some less obvious ones yeah, definitely. And I mean, if you were looking at those shows uh, on the outside, you, you would see back in the days of terrestrial TV. I don't think sex education would have got uh, would have got onto terrestrial TV. I don't think that would have got a deal. And Queen's Gambit almost certainly wouldn't, even though that turned out to be a fantastic piece of TV. If you were saying, you know, I want to make a show about chess um, and I want to put it on, you know, BBC primetime, they'd have gone absolutely not get out of the office. So it just kind of shows you that these streaming companies have come along and they've added a lot of things to the sort of quality of the entertainment that we watch. But just quickly, Steve, I'll move on as well because we've talked about content slate. I just want to quickly touch on the ad supported. So ad supported is launching in 14 territories. These are big territories. They represent 75% of the world total ad spend. We know that the pricing on the ad tier is $7. The ad load looks very light, four to five minutes of adverts per content hour. That's about four times less than what you would normally see on a, on, a, on your TV. Um, the theory is that this could lead to a drop in ARPU, although Netflix are actually indicating to us that ad supported is pretty much net neutral and in some territories is actually going to be positive to ARPU. So now imagine when they crank up this ad load, the lower entry price should also expand market reach to more cost sensitive customers, the sort of people who would like Netflix but have maybe been waiting for this ad support to come along. Uh, Netflix have also indicated that, just as a another further point, there's about 30 million homes in the US and Canada who aren't paying for the service. They're just piggybacking on another uh, paying user's account. In putting a stop to this, Netflix hopes it will convert some of these. And I mean, 
let's call them as they are, if it converts just one of these freeloaders into a paying member, uh, that's a positive. 10% conversion is huge growth. Another 420 million on the top line. Uh, if it converts half of them, it's 2.1 billion on the top line. Interesting stuff. I mean, so not to go all kind of Laura Martin on you here, converting people, does that take the kind of, well, two thoughts. One, does that kind of take the audience away from the ad tier and make it less attractive to advertisers? Number two, could they get round this by just appointing you to run 20 ads in every ad break for them? <laughs> yeah, that would be actually. Yeah, that would be an accident. Yeah, our, our ad load was not four to five minutes per hour in the uh, in that previous. No, one, it was four to five minutes per minute. I think. But yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Hopefully, I remember to do that this time. But <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I guess. Um, actually, look, I don't think I don't think it does. I think making people create their own accounts is a great thing. These people are not on the ad tier at the moment by virtue of it not existing. So if they want to get their own account, if they like Netflix, uh, then they're going to have to create their own account. There's 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 no bones about it. And if they don't like Netflix and they don't watch it, then what's the damage? I don't, I don't really see the point. I think if Netflix even converts a small amount of these people and the rest of them, you know, unfortunately don't get access to Netflix, they just become potential customers later down the line when Netflix does release that series that they originally wanted the Netflix account for or an updated version or a spin-off or something. They just, they, they become potential customers and that, that's, that's just a good thing. Yeah, so, I mean, beyond the kind of basics of, of streaming, are there revenue streams here? This feels like kind of content is important and so on, merchandising things, <laughs> Disney and so on. Yeah, so, I mean, I listened to a couple of interviews when Reed Hastings was talking about sort of pivoting to making original content, and uh, he got told that IP takes at least 10 years to uh, actually start to, to get a foothold. And we're just getting to that 10 year now. So, I mean, you're going to look at things like games makers or toy makers like Mattel or Hasbro, uh, even merchandise makers would be happy to pay for some of Netflix's content and transform it into other items. There's not a lot in this at the moment because... Like I said, this IP is, is young. I would expect more of this and maybe more of it to happen on Netflix's platform directly. Um, but this is as Netflix matures. I was in the Blackwells the other week and I saw some evidence of this already starting to happen. I was sure I saw a Queen's Gambit uh, board game. And I went back and checked this to, before we kind of uh, put this together and uh, just to make sure I wasn't going completely mad here. And when I Googled Queen's Gambit board game, one of the things that kind of came up as a, a suggested question or a commonly asked question of, is the Queen's Gambit board game just chess? Uh, and I think the answer is no, it isn't. It's published by a company called Mixlaw, I think, which I don't really know of very well. And I haven't seen how the game works. But, I mean, that seems to me to be clear evidence that there's interest in this kind of thing and that they could maybe license this out or something. Yeah, and I think there could be more of this as it goes on. I mean, like The Witcher, if we could have kept Henry Cavill in that place and it wouldn't start to be a terrible show under Liam mm -hmm. Hemsworth, um, that could potentially have spawned off a whole... I mean, it's got a whole universe behind it. I think there is another Witcher show coming to... Uh, a spin-off show coming uh, to Netflix over Christmas as well. So that could have spawned off a whole a whole list of things from board games to toys to 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 whatever really but, squid um, games dharma all these kind of things that lend themselves yeah, to well, christmas games <laughs> yeah da dharma would be a wonderful <laughs> christmas game yeah absolutely um squid games an important one though because this this we're talking about localized content mm. here. we're talking about yeah. something that was made for the korean market and the power of netflix's uh, localization trying to bring it and dub it back into uh, other markets and it ended up being essentially a global success so this is a great thing for netflix because it kind of shows them that well this this content might be you know we might have made this specifically for a korean market but 
the world enjoyed Squid Game, and that's that's a positive thing. So when you're shooting films into you know films and content and series into forty different countries, and you have the power to be able to like localize and dub this content back to other countries, it it just the the potential of another hit like that is just you know it, it, it is just big. But lastly, Steve, I'll just give you this last little bit of information. I was looking at the churn rates of all of the streamers, and they're flat. And this would indicate that rather than being a sort of winner-takes-all kind of market uh, where, you know, people gravitate to whoever has the best content and then they gravitate back if that company, you know, stops producing great content, there's nothing like that. It's uh, the company's just – people just seem to be picking multiple streamers and kind of sticking with them. And this makes me think about, like – 10, 15 years ago when I hated when I was with Sky TV and I absolutely hated it and I said, and you'd ring them up and you'd be like, look, I want the entertainment package but I just want Sky 1. I don't want like all the other crap that comes with it. And you can't have it. And if you have the entertainment package you have to have movies. Do you know what I mean? And you ended up like ringing up for basically wanting six channels and paying 70 quid a month for it. Like this Netflix, getting HBO, getting Netflix, getting Disney Plus, this is exactly what we've been asking to be able to do for years and now we can do it and that that definitely feels to me like this is the reason why we have these chain rates yeah it's interesting isn't it so many markets appear to be the case of winner takes either all or at the very least the vast majority so i think about battles between amd and intel in semiconductor space and it's never been the case that they've both done well it's a case that one or other of them has been putting the other one nearly out of business all the time and right now it's amd and the ascendancy and before it was intel and no doubt it'll swing back again and forward again Mm. and back and forward and forward again but it's always really interesting to find these cases i guess where where there's opportunities for lots of different companies that are in a sense in competition they are if you think about these as advertising businesses they are bidding for your viewing time and so on but can still all kind of do well together. I guess that's an interesting sort of thing to think about here. Yeah, absolutely. I've got a couple more like little points that I've pulled out of interviews that were they were really very interesting. So, mm. um, Ted Sarandos used to run uh, um, a video rental company when he was a, a, a younger man, and they asked him what he took away from that, and he said, and this is an interesting point, is that the uh, a great offering a great recommendation to a customer was the best way to keep them loyal to you. They would keep coming back to ask you the same question. Ted Sarandos obviously being the co-CEO mm-hmm. and head yep. of content at Netflix as well. So important little fact. And the other thing that really interests me is that Reed Hastings said that essentially the whole 18 to 49 uh, market has switched from TV uh, to streaming. So anybody looking to target 18 to 49 year olds on terrestrial TV by making a TV ad has essentially lost a whole market that they're able to target. And this is, this is his, um, he called it his, his, his blinkered situation that he didn't realize that a lot of this market is on Netflix. So by introducing the ad supported to you, he's almost giving them uh, not unfettered access to 18 to, to 49 year olds, but at least giving them a chance to be exposed to this kind of market that they want to target that, you know, up until fairly recently, they've been able to get through terrestrial TV that have slowly disappeared from terrestrial TV. And now Netflix is offering this, you know, access to this, you know, what is that? I assume prime advertising market. Yeah. And 18 to 49 
it's two things about that strike me. One is that that's quite a large cohort of people. Mm. And the other is it's a pretty important cohort of people, right? These are the people who are going to be making decisions about what they watch and view and spend on and forming habits in mm. certain ways, for good or for bad, that are going to be around for some time. There's a kind of saying uh, loosely somewhere that I would have looked up if I'd thought about this before that says if you want to know what's going to be popular kind of in the future, go and look at what the teens are doing basically, mm. because they will uh, be building out those kind of trends that will will stick with you. So that's evidence of that comes from things like Lululemon, the enduring success of McDonald's, which appears to be popular with teens for all kinds of reasons. But looking at what the teens are doing seems to be important. The next bracket up, I guess, is 18 to 49, although it's a very big bracket and a very mm. uh, heterogeneous um, one. So I feel like that's an important kind of category for streamers in general and netflix in particular uh to be kind of the main place to be looking at for these sorts of things so i guess that should be important right it, yeah, and look it's a strange bracket i must admit do you, like have i worked in advertising before and i'm fairly certain we didn't have like one to 17 18 to 49 and presumably 50 to dead i mean that is just like, <laughs> it's such a strange strange huge bracket well, where you it? live but, on 50 to dead might be one category but yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah it, it is really strange isn't it but look, that's you know this is this is what reed thinks and this is why if you wondered why netflix were finally going into advertising it was that you know, Netflix is the great pivoter, and this is a market that they have just discovered is like literally on their doorstep. Finishing where we left it on that kind of point before about pivoting, I guess that's that's such an impressive feature, isn't it? I mean, the life mm. cycle of companies, and so many companies go wrong by trying to pivot. Right? They sort of fail to understand that they're they're aging and that they should be into a different kind of mode. They should be behaving like a Coca Cola or something like that. Of just keep supplying that demand that's there and distribute your earnings and push prices where you need to and and try and keep moving your costs down and so on. I'm not saying don't innovate, but they don't try and do anything wildly different at Coke in any interesting way from what I can see. But it's... Netflix does it so well. They keep pivoting. Microsoft is another example of something from what I can see that refuses to get old gracefully, uh, but impressively, right? Sorry, go on. Yeah, it's, it's an admirable quality of a company of this size and this many employees to still be so agile. Mm. Um, uh, and, you know, this is this is something that we should, you know, we should really applaud Netflix is that literally two quarters of it, they weren't talking about an advertising tier. Then they said, hey, look, actually, you were right. We probably should look at an advertising tier. And then merely six or eight weeks later, it was built and ready to ship. And they had a partner signed and and, uh, and um, it was obviously partner signed was, was Microsoft who um, Laura Martin at Needham's said uh, the only reason they were doing that was to try and convince Microsoft to buy them, uh, <laughs> which is, seems to have been another... Uh, 0.16 out of 5 call. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, eventually you would do better by just flipping coins, right, statistically. And I'd say that as someone who has a, a stock sampler of five stocks, four of which are down quite significantly. Mm. Uh, or, sorry, three of which are down quite significantly and one is flat. So not incredibly impressive stuff from me either. But um, I'm not a professional analyst. I'm someone who you shouldn't listen to very carefully for stock advice, but you may or may not find the things I say interesting. Same goes for Steve, uh, for what it's worth. And Netflix and Amazon are our two stocks that we individually would double down on in December, and maybe going forwards beyond that as well. I quite enjoyed that as an activity of finding a headline and seeing what we would kind of come up with that. We'll do that again with a different one. So look out for 15 FTSE 100 stocks I'd buy hand over fist at today's prices. Uh, 
Um, but we'll find some other interesting stuff to have a think about. We'll hopefully have Paul back with us next week. It will be our Christmas special next time because I think we'll be going out on the on Christmas Day next week. Is that right, Steve? Uh, Christmas yeah. Day is a Sunday, so it must be next that one. Yeah, it will be. Yeah, uh, we're really looking forward to recording that episode. That'll be next week. Join us for that, and let us know what you've been doubling down on in December. Thank you all so much for listening, and bye for now.